Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Montaigne wrote that children's playthings are not sports and should be deemed their most serious actions. Freud regarded play as the means by which the child accomplishes his first great cultural and psychological achievements. Freud also noted how much and how well children express their thoughts and feelings through play. Why then should we assume that we outgrow the value of play, the wonder of seeing the world through joy rather than fear? Think about all you've read about the creativity of Silicon Valley, the atmosphere of fun that entrepreneurs try to create. Today, even education is being built around the idea of projects, of teams, of fun, and of wonder. This is the world that my guest, best-selling author Stephen Johnson, explores in his new book, Wonderland. Stephen Johnson is the author of 10 previous books, including How We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Air, and Everything Bad is Good for You. He's the founder of a variety of influential websites and the host and co-creator of the PBS and BBC series, How We Got to Now. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Johnson back to this program to talk about Wonderland, how play made the modern world. Stephen, welcome back to the program. Yeah, it's great to be back, Jeff. It's great to have you here. Why is it that when the subject of play often comes up, it's not taken seriously, when in fact play is, is valuable in shaping our worldview? Well, I think you got to it exactly, and that was such a lovely introduction um, to, to the ideas. Uh, it, I think it's because it is associated with childhood, right? Um, and so it's something that we are seen to, to out, you know, we're, we're supposed to outgrow, or if it still lingers on in our, in, in our adult lives, it's, it's this kind of leftover bit from our uh, you know, our childhood and real history and, and real change comes from, you know, kind of serious work and from focus and from trying to solve a problem kind of directly by engaging with the problem. And in fact, you know, that is sometimes true. There are, you know, there are many inventions and, and breakthroughs in society that came from people approaching them in a kind of high-minded way. But there is just this incredibly rich history of major advances uh, and changes, sometimes for the good and sometimes for the better, for, for the worse, coming out of this playful state that kind of this, the seeking out of delight and surprise and, and wonder is a, is a major driver of, of change in society. And, and uh, we, should, we should pay more attention to that. And one of the points you make is that sometimes play and amusement and entertainment are not just the byproducts of, of hard and serious work, but they're kind of the canary in the coal mine. They tell us what's, what's ahead, what's coming. Yeah, I mean, for instance, you know, one of the great examples of this is, um, if, if you think about that, the, the opening chapter of the book is about the history of fashion and, and shopping. And if you'd, if you'd been in London in, in 1680 or 1690, you would have seen this very interesting new development where the, there were these stores that were developed that kind of turned shopping into a uh, a pursuit in and of itself, right? You had these fancy stores with these elaborate kind of decorations and people would go and shop just for the fun of it. And one of the things that happened in those stores is that people, for the first time in England, in, in London, they got a, a, a kind of a taste or, or an affection for this amazing new fabric from India, calico, calico and chintz, basically variations of, of cotton fabrics with 
these beautiful patterns on them. They're really rich colors that would survive getting washed multiple times, unlike most other fabrics up until that point. And uh, what ended up happening was it created this craze for these fabrics that at the time just seemed like, initially it just seemed like a frivolous thing. It's just people getting into a fashion and wasting a lot of money on these fabrics. But it set off, first off, this kind of economic change where all of a sudden there was this big trade imbalance with India. The East India Company made this vast fortune from shipping calico and chintz uh, to create this, uh, meet this demand. And that ends up triggering a, a political backlash because suddenly the, the traditional wool industry in in England is being basically put out of business by this imported new fabric. And so all of a sudden there are all these angry screeds being written about these women who are buying these fabrics from overseas who are ruining the British economy. They're called calico madams. Um, and it, it, it eventually actually leads to the banning of calico and, and chintz for a while, which was a pretty draconian step. But, what it also leads to is suddenly people start to think, well, wait a second, we could maybe manufacture these lovely cotton fabrics here in in England. And so they start devising all these, you know, machines to, to produce uh, cotton in a more efficient way, cotton fabrics in a more efficient way. And that is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. You know, probably the most important technological revolution of, of our, you know, the last maybe of, of human history. And... And it began, if you think about where did it start? Well, it started with someone looking at this fabric and saying, that's beautiful. You know, it then became a very serious, you know, epic industrial engineering kind of quest. But the thing that set that whole chain of events in motion was actually a moment of, of delight. Has the current technological revolution impacted this idea? Well, I think it's... Uh, I think it's it's kind of built in now a little bit to the technology um, world. And, you know, there's that famous line of kind of the best technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and, you know, there is that sense of oh, you have some new object that comes out and, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, there's something magical about it or delightful about it. And, and it's not just about the function of the machine. You know, when you saw the first, you know, in the early days of computing, you know, the, 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 you know, those initial computers, they weren't presented in terms of <laughs> magic and delight. They were like, this will help you calculate large numbers of rocket trajectories for the military. Uh, and now we kind of package computers and technology in, in much more of a way where we're playing to that appetite for delight. But in fact, it's always been part of the story. I mean, it was one of the things that Steve Jobs had to face when, when the Mac came along. People thought it was a toy. People didn't take it seriously at first. Yeah, and, and, and Jobs is an interesting part of this story because you know, one of the things I write about, in the, in the, I have a chapter on, on games, and you know, there was this fascinating game that actually I, I, I played, even though it's more than 50 years old, at the Computer History Museum, not, not far from you down in um, Silicon Valley. There's this game called Space War that was uh, really the first video game ever created. It was created in 1961 by a bunch of MIT guys who had gotten this new computer, the PDP-1, which was was called a mini computer at the time, which is kind of a joke because it was the size of you know, like a closet. Um, but it, they had a monitor for the first time, and they were like, what are we going to do? We can do things on at the screen. And so they decided to create a game. And they created a game that basically became eventually turned into asteroids 
you know, 15 years later, that game that I grew up playing uh, as a young kid. Uh, and that software, the software for Space War, wasn't just the beginning of the video game industry, which is, you know, a big industry, and it's interesting to know where it came from. But more importantly, that software was one of the most significant pieces of software written in the 1960s. It introduced all these new uh, ideas to the digital world. Uh, for the first time, you had an on-screen representation that kind of was your avatar on the screen, like a mouse pointer in a graphic interface. Today, you had controllers to kind of manipulate that, much like uh, you know a mouse. It was one of the first really open-source pieces of software where people were free to add to the code and improve on it, which, of course, led to Linux and, and Wikipedia and all sorts of different software models. And it eventually inspired a whole generation of people, including Stuart Brand, uh, to realize that computers were not just for big business, they weren't just for the military, they were going to be personal, um, they were going to be for ordinary people, they were going to be as much about entertainment as they were about you know, calculating taxes or something. And they inspired the, you know, the video game company Atari, uh, which is where Steve Jobs basically got his first job. Right. And that whole vision of a personal computer comes directly out of uh, space war and then some things that Stuart Brand wrote about it in Rolling Stone magazine in the early 70s. So it was an enormously influential program. What is the nexus between art and play and the way society has developed as it relates to that? Well, it, you know, to the extent that art is um, is either sometimes about tricking the mind into thinking it is somewhere else um, you know, I have a whole chapter in the book about illusions, about really about optical illusions, and how 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 much time we spend tricking our eyes into seeing things that aren't there, and how fun that is, um, and how much people have enjoyed submitting themselves to those kinds of illusions over history. Because if you look back, if you think about it, you know, perspective and painting, uh, which is rightly considered one of the great artistic innovations of uh, of the Renaissance, certainly, and, and arguably of all time in the history of painting, probably the single most important innovation in the history of, of painted art. Um, it's just an optical illusion. I mean, it's, you're, you're tricking the eye into seeing a three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional surface. And that, of course, led to, you know, extraordinary uh, artwork 500 years ago. Um, and, and of course, you know the cinema is another kind of optical illusion. Um, if if you if you run a series of still images at more than 12 to 14 frames per second, the human eye can only see those images as motion, uh, as continuous motion, even though that's technically not there. I mean, when you watch a movie, you are you are being tricked into seeing motion when there where there is no motion. It's just a series of still images. And think of, I mean, think of how much of the 20th century has been shaped by that. That kind of weird thing, it was just a strange quirk of the human visual system. It might not have happened that way. It might have just made us feel nauseous or made it just look like a series of very fast still images. And imagine what the 20th century would have been like if we didn't have that strange way of our eyes being tricked without any form of motion picture, with no movies, no television, all the things that, that define so much of the last hundred years would just go away if it weren't for that that kind of trick of the eye. Sort of like the way we've been tricked by reality television. <laughs> well, it leads to, I mean, one of the things that happens is kind of an emotional trick of the mind where when you see people in motion with sound and particularly with close-ups, that was one of the things that, you know, Hollywood invented once they had this technology of, 
of motion pictures, they suddenly realized, after, after 10 or 15 years, they were like, oh, this is really good if, if you bring the camera close to the person's face. You know, the first movies all looked like they were shot like theater, like you were very far away. And, and then they started saying, wait, the close-up is really powerful. And once you had that, there is just something about the human mind, I think, that when you see people with that level of resolution in full motion with sound in a close-up form where you just get tricked into thinking that you know them and you feel for them and they feel like part of your kind of extended family in some way. And that's, and that's, you know, that's why celebrity culture takes off in the 20th century that, you know, that, that you could care so much about the Kardashians, <laughs> even though you will never meet them. They do not know who you are, but they feel like people and just hanging around in their kitchen is meaningful to you because that illusion is, is so powerful. And, and by the way, this is a great example of how, you know, there's a lot in this book that celebrates the history of play, but it's not all, you know, good news. I mean, I think probably the world would be slightly better with fewer Kardashians mm-hmm. <laughs> in our lives. Um, and, and certainly things like, you know, cotton and, and calico, that led to, you can't tell the story of, of slavery in the United States without talking about cotton. So, so it, it's not that this is entirely a story about progress and these beautiful things. Um, it's, it's, it has certainly some, some dark chapters in it as well. And what that really seems to go to is the idea that play is fundamentally different at different times. And the way it shapes us, the way it shapes us individually, and the way it shapes us as a society is fundamentally different. That play, in many ways, gives us whatever worldview we have at a particular point in time. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great way of phrasing it. I mean, well, this is one of the things I wrestled at the very end of the book. We're just trying to say why why if you accept this premise that play and delight have been a big driver of, of world history, um, even though these things are not utilitarian, they, they don't give us any survival advantage um, in a direct sense. So why, why, why has it been so influential? And, and the, the reason I think is if you look at all the things I write about, you know, from video games to Calico to spices to, you know, all these different things that, that seem to belong to a lot of different kind of conceptual categories. But what they all share is that when they first appeared, uh, they were surprising. They were new. There was something interesting and intriguing. No, you know, here's this new taste of clove or cinnamon, you know, that has come to you from across the world and no person in Europe has ever tasted this before. Oh, that's interesting. Or here's a new sound um, from this new musical instrument. Oh, that's interesting. And, and it turns out that our brains, this is another kind of biological side of this story, our brains have, have been engineered by evolution over many millions of years to pay attention to experiences that are surprising. When the world kind of, when, when we make predictions about what we're going to experience in the world and those predictions are kind of challenged by some new experience or some new taste or some new sound, we hear something new, we pay attention. We have a you know, we have a whole neurochemical system to kind of focus the mind and, 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 and try and engage with this new experience. And as you said, this means that it's constantly changing and, and, and one generation's surprise is the next generation's, you know, ordinary. Um, and so if you are building experiences or technology to, to surprise people and to delight them, you have to keep moving the, <laughs> the goalposts, right? You have to keep pushing the boundaries um, because 
if you grow up with something, you're not surprised by it anymore. And so that's why surprise is such a driver of, of new ideas and new explorations, because you have to keep keep kind of changing the rules to keep people interested. And part of that is the way in which the mind is so quick to accept things, that things become routine, become ordinary very quickly. That's why we always have to have the next new thing, I suppose. Yeah. And it's, it's partially what I like to do in, in my books, and particularly in, in Wonderland and How We Got to Now, the last one, is to just remind people of all these things that we take for granted and how kind of extraordinary they are. I mean, one of the things, you know, just to think about, think about how many different kinds of spaces in your world now uh, are there that have been specifically engineered for you to have fun in, in one way or another, whether it's a coffee house or a bar or a theme park or a movie theater or a, you know, or a museum or a zoo or a sports stadium. I mean, it's just, the world is just filled with all these spaces that are, you know, as kind of the title comes from, they're like little wonderlands of, of, of play and fun and delight. And, you know, if you'd gone back, I don't know, 300 or 400 years ago, the average person would have had almost none of those things would have been available to, 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 you know, they were only really in their earlier forms available to the, to the 1% or the 1% of the 1% uh, in terms of the global population. And now all around the world, we have shopping malls and movie theaters and, uh, and amusement parks that, you know, have become, you know, really a, a, a part of ordinary life. And, and, uh, you know, I, there's something ultimately, I mean, we waste a lot of time in these spaces and they can sometimes be, you know, escape places and we spend too much time getting trapped up in them. But the idea that we have all these resources is still on some level, I think, uh, you know, a, a sign of progress. I suppose the effort has always been to find the right balance between fun, between the wow effect, and whatever seriousness might be required. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, and it it uh, you know there, there was a really interesting argument that the, the historian uh, Braudel made many years ago. He was talking about fashion. And he, he was talking about how a lot of people, understandably, and I think that this is a reasonable argument, say that when, once fashion, in, after Calico and Chintz, we were talking about after that kind of wave, um, over the course of the 1700s, fashion accelerates and you go from fashion, trends in fashion basically going on the speed of kind of every decade, there's a new look. By the end of that century, fashion accelerates up to this point where it's basically once a year, there's a whole new look and this is the in fabric or this is the in look and last year's look is, is out. And on the one hand, you can look at that and say, well, that's a colossal waste of time. <laughs> you know, like why should people sit around trying to decide if this year's fab fashion is, you know, the right one or if you're wearing last year's coat and you're out of, you know, you're not cool anymore. But what Braudel argued is it's interesting that the countries where that rapid fire fashion sensibility took off, for instance, in France, um, those countries also turned out to be the countries that were the first to really go through major political revolutions and democratic revolutions. And it could be that the appetite for change and for rewriting the rules and for embracing new experiences actually was a sign of some deeper part of the society. And that, in fact, there's a connection between the drive for democracy and the drive for new political forms of an organization and the drive to have a fancy new coat that looks cool according to this year's fashion, that those two things are not necessarily separate. And it's hard to prove that, right? Um, 
But yeah, I think it's a pretty pretty intriguing connection to make. I guess part of it, too, is the degree to which the new, whether it's the new fashion or the new phone or whatever it may be, the degree to which the new becomes integrated into the established order. I mean, that seems to be the, the, the highest level of success, the way that you can have change and newness and have an underlying sense of security and, and sameness that is able to integrate the new into it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's sometimes you have you have cases where these technologies and these new ideas and these new experiences get yeah they get integrated and they end up almost kind of reinforcing the established order in a in a, in a kind of way that mm-hmm. you have here you have all these amusements so amuse yourself but we're going to keep things where they are. But there is also kind of a permanently unsettled, disruptive, maybe, kind of side of this as well. So you think about, um, in, the, in, the, in the chapter on, on public spaces, they talk a lot about the history of bars, the history of taverns, right? And in some ways, a tavern, a drinking establishment, is one of the oldest forms of this idea of a kind of a leisure space. You know, it's not work, it's not home, it's a space you go to unwind and have a couple of drinks and, and, and have some fun. And, and it's been around for thousands and thousands of years, so it's, it's one of the oldest forms of this. And if you go back and look at it, it is all taverns have been associated with political revolutions and social revolutions from, for, for, you know, for hundreds of years at least. The American Revolution was heavily dependent on the kind of the, the, the space of the tavern as a space where people would get together and share ideas about, you know, the, the revolutionary ideas uh, of that period. And think about, you, I mean, you can't tell the story of the, the fight for gay rights in the United States without bars, without gay bars, right? I mean, think about Stonewall. Um, think about the, there was a bar, um, the Black Cat, in, um, in L.A. where some pre-Stonewall riots happened that were crucial in the history of, uh, uh, of gay rights. Um, having these spaces where people could cluster who were challenging the established order um, who are challenging our assumptions about either political orthodoxy or sexual identity or whatever it is, those spaces have, have always been crucial to that, that kind of dissent or, or, or new, new ideas getting into circulation in society. When we look at it, you touched on this before, talking about evolutionary survival. When we look at it from an evolutionary biological point of view— and we look at, at primates and the animal kingdom, what do we see with respect to fun that's instructive in terms of this larger view? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked about that, because I really just touched on this briefly in the book, but I've actually been exploring it a little bit more. We've been doing a podcast uh, about these themes where I've gotten into some of these issues. It's at wonderland.audio, if people want to go um, listen to that. And it, it turns out if you look at other mammals... Um, and if you kind of grade them in, in terms of their, the flexibility of their intelligence, um, you know, there's some creatures that are basically, you know, sit there and they have a pre-programmed way of navigating the world. This is the kind of classic fox versus a hedgehog kind of theory. You know, there's some animals that just know how to do one thing and they just do that one thing. And then there's some animals that have a much more, uh, flexible, adaptive, creative problem-solving approach to life. And foxes are an example of this, right? And, and it turns out one of the strongest 
um, kind of correlations in understanding where that intelligence comes from is how long a childhood those creatures have and how much time they spend playing in that in that period. If they have a long period uh, of kind of the equivalent of human childhood when they're not really responsible for bringing food directly where they're allowed to play, um, the longer that period is, the more flexible and, and uh, kind of open-ended their intelligence is as a, a mature animal later in, in life. And I think that's, and, and human beings have kind of the longest period of childhood and the most developed forms of play. And I think there's a direct connection between that and what we do as grown-ups. And finally, I mean, it's true relative to what we're seeing in our educational system today, where there is much more focus on projects and collaboration and essentially play, making it more fun. You know, I see it in my kids. I mean, they, they you know, when they play some of the better video games just at home, when they're playing a complex simulation game, when they're playing Minecraft, for instance, Minecraft is an incredibly complicated game. I mean, if you're trying to, you know, actually program and create worlds in Minecraft, it's enormously complicated and it's a very rich form of thinking. And yet my, you know, my, I've, uh, my youngest is now 10, but he was, you know, building worlds in Minecraft when he was seven. And if you'd sat him down, you know, to teach him programming in a traditional classroom, he would have never wanted to hear about it because he was seven. But because it was presented in the form of a, of a game, of a, a kind of a play space, uh, he ended up learning without realizing he was learning, right? Which is the best way to learn. He was, he was learning in spite of himself because he just got sucked in by this, the, the kind of creative power of, of play. Stephen Johnson, the book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Stephen, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, it was great to be back, Jeff. Thank you.